Happy New Year and welcome to another sermon in our series on the book of Genesis. As you may know, Genesis means in the beginning. And as we head into 2021, I know we are all hoping for a new beginning. Let's put 2020 in the past and start fresh this year. Oh God, we pray. Well, my name is Dan Forrest and to usher us into 2021, I will be preaching on Genesis chapters 20 and 21, a little bit into 26 as well. Well, before we get into it, I have a quick video clip from what is arguably the greatest film of the 20th century. Let's watch. Oh, déjà vu. What did you just say? Nothing, just a little déjà vu. What did you see? What happened? A black cat went past us, and then another that looked just like it. How much like it? Was it the same cat? Might have been, I'm not sure. Switch, APOC. What is it? A deja vu is usually a glitch in the matrix. It happens when they change something. Oh my god. Let's go. Hardline, it's a trap. Get out. Oh no. Oh no. Whoa, deja vu. I love The Matrix so much. It is such a deep movie. <laughs> well, deja vu is an interesting phenomenon. Um, I experience it quite often, um, but I don't think it's because there's a glitch in the matrix. I think it's really just because I like routines and patterns, and I find myself in similar situations all the time, so I see the same things over and over again. But also I think deja vu happens because there's a glitch in our programming as humans, not in the matrix. We, as humans, tend to repeat things over and over again, even though they didn't work out for us the first time. Well, consider New Year's resolutions, for example. So many people buy gym memberships and they throw out their cigarettes thinking this year they're going to make their lives better. They're going to change. But deja vu. A few weeks later, the gyms have less people again and more cigarettes get purchased. It's a glitch in humanity. Well, as we read through Genesis today, you're going to experience some deja vu. Haven't I read this story before? <laughs> this will happen not once, but twice, as we, see, as we see the same story play out again and again in multiple occasions. So let's begin with Genesis 20, verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Whoa, deja vu. <laughs> Haven't we read this story before? Yes, we have. Way back in Genesis 12, we had Abraham doing the almost exact same thing. While he was in Egypt, he tells Sarah to say to everybody that he's his sister, and Pharaoh takes her into his palace. 
What a great guy. What a great husband. To spare his own neck, he's willing to give up his wife. And he's doing it again, even though it was a mess the last time he did it. Okay, let's continue. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech said to Ab- asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere you go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Once again, another strange story in the book of Genesis. How does Abraham think this is a good idea? Well, technically she is my half-sister. You know what you're doing, Abraham. A half-truth is a lie. You're lying. And like I said, this isn't the first time Abraham has pulled this stunt. Let's compare what happens here in Genesis 20 with what happened back in Genesis 12. Well, with Pharaoh, there's a famine in the land, and that leads Abram and his family down to Egypt. With Abimelech, there is no famine. They're currently living in Gerar, a region of Canaan, which is the land of the Philistines. In Genesis 12, Abram tells Sarah to say, you are my sister. And in Genesis 20, Abraham is the one telling the Philistines that Sarah is his sister. In Genesis 12, it says Sarah was beautiful, but here there's no mention of it. And it's probably because Sarah is in her 90s at this point, which makes this story even weirder. I don't know how to even reconcile this. Anyways, young Sarah is taken by Pharaoh, but it doesn't say if he slept with her or not. But with Abimelech, it's clearly said that he did not sleep with her. In both these stories, God intervenes. With, with Pharaoh, diseases come upon him and his household, but with Abimelech, he's threatened in a dream that he will die, and his household of women are all made barren, just like Sarah. We don't know how Pharaoh figures out that Sarah is Abram's wife, but he returns her, and Abimelech does the same. In both stories, Abram comes out on top at the end, though, 
With Pharaoh, Abraham is given sheep, cattle, servants, and camels when Sarah is originally taken. But with Abimelech, he's given sheep, cattle, slaves, and silver when Sarah is returned to appease him and to right the wrong that has happened. This is so strange because even though Abraham is clearly doing the wrong thing in both these stories, somehow he ends up wealthy at the end of it. Well, back in Egypt, Pharaoh banishes him, but in Canaan, Abimelech allows him to stay and live in the land. Both these stories represent a lack of faith on Abraham's part and a threat to God's covenant with him. God had promised Abraham that he would bless him with descendants and with land. And instead of trusting that God would protect him and make it all happen, Abraham lies selfishly to protect his own neck. And he also risks the loss of his wife, who is to be the mother of these promised descendants. This is a stain on Abraham's record, and it's shocking that he makes the same mistake twice in his lifetime. For all we know, he could have made it more than twice, actually. Well, I say it's shocking, but isn't this another case of the glitch in humanity? The glitch that we all have in us to do the same wrong things over and over without change? In Proverbs 26 verse 11, we read, As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Or you've probably heard this modern day quote, What is the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Why do we do this? (laughs) What is wrong with us? We repeat the same things over and over again and we expect different results. Sure, in, in Abraham's case, the reward for his folly was wealth and prosperity, but was that really his reward? I think what actually was the reward was a broken marriage of mistrust and a hardened habit of telling bad lies. The fact that he made money in the end probably hurt any desire that he might have had to even change. It probably explains why people in business do shady deals. You know, they make more money. Or why people keep cheating on their spouses. They get pleasure from their affairs. But what's the real reward of doing those things? The fact that Abraham gets wealthy in both cases is not a sign that he's made a good decision. God isn't blessing him for making a mistake, but rather God is blessing him because they're in a covenant relationship together. And even though Abraham is failing at his end of the bargain, God is still faithful to keep his end. Well, in Genesis 21, God finally fulfills his first major promise to Abraham and Sarah. He gives them a son. Genesis 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, after years of waiting, of trusting in God, yet not fully trusting in God, God delivers what he had promised and Isaac is born to them in their old age. The story that follows his birth is one that I talked about in my last sermon, so I won't say much here. A few years after Isaac is born, Sarah has another altercation with uh, Hagar and Ishmael. 
and God intervenes to save them and bless them. And this is just another case of deja vu on Sarah's part. Clearly, she also is repeating her past mistakes of mistreating people, and she's not growing as a person. Well, after that incident, Abimelech comes back into the picture wanting to speak with Abraham. We read in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as foreigner the same kindness I have shown you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me and I only heard about it today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the Eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Well, wells of water were a vital source of life for everyone living in Bible times. We today take for granted the clean, fresh water that we have access to from our taps every day. But a well in this barren and dry land is life. So Abraham is not happy that Abimelech's servants have seized his well. To have it returned is a glorious thing. And with this well and his wealth and the covenant with the Philistines, Abraham is able to live comfortably in Canaan for a long time. Next week, we're going to hear what happens next in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. But for today, for today, I'm going to jump ahead in time again and look at chapter 26, because it's connected to our passage today. We've seen deja vu happen in Abraham's story, and now it's going to seep into Isaac's story as well. Genesis 26 verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, The men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. Oh my goodness! Not Isaac too. What is going on here? This story is so similar to the other two times that this happened. Let's compare these stories again. So once again, there's a famine in the land, but this time God tells Isaac not to go down to Egypt, but to stay in Gerar. Once again, he tells people that Rebekah is his sister, which is a full lie this time. He has no blood relation to her at all. And this time we read that Rebekah is beautiful, and that's why Isaac is worried he'll be killed. But in this story, Rebekah actually doesn't get taken. Abimelech figures out beforehand that they're married because he sees them being playful together, and he gives Isaac a stern lecture for lying. Now, a strange thing in the story is at the end of it. Isaac also gets wealthy and prosperous, and this time it's because he's being blessed, blessed by the Lord with bountiful crops. And it's not from Abimelech or Pharaoh. Well, guess what? The deja vu doesn't end there. The story continues with Isaac reopening Abraham's wells that the Philistines had blocked up, causing the Philistines to quarrel with him until Abimelech comes down to make a covenant with him. Does that sound familiar? 
What happens next is almost exactly what happened in chapter 21. Abimelech and Fickle come to make a covenant. They recognize God is with Abraham and with Isaac. They want a peace treaty so their people are treated well. A well of water is returned to Abraham and a well of water is dug up by Isaac. And both times the area is named Beersheba, which means well of oath. What is going on here? How is this story and the story before it happening again almost exactly the same as the other times? Well, some scholars have come to the conclusion that this didn't actually happen multiple times. It happened only once, and the author of Genesis decided to repeat it in different contexts for specific reasons. I don't really agree with this theory. I don't agree with this theory at all. Because even though the stories are similar, they do have some clear differences. Like, why isn't Rebecca taken when Sarah was taken both other times? Well, for me, I think there are two important things that these three stories are telling us. The first one is that Isaac is carrying on the covenant passed down to him from his father Abraham. The covenant is making, or the author is making it very clear that Isaac is following in his father's footsteps, the good and the bad. And even though he's following in the bad, God is still faithful to him, just as he was faithful to Abraham. And this is made especially clear in Genesis 26, when twice God explains the same covenant promises to Isaac that he promised to Abraham. Genesis 26 verse 2, The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. The pattern of this story is confirmation that the covenant promises to Abraham are now passed on to Isaac. And even though Isaac may make the same mistakes as his father, the Lord God will still bless him and honor his part of the covenant. Well, the second important thing about these stories occurring multiple times is the lesson that there is a glitch in humanity. With Abraham, he makes the same mistake twice, many years apart. This confirms what we all know about ourselves. Even though we want to change, we still fall into the same patterns of mistakes over and over again. But what's the deal with Isaac? Why does he pass his wife off as his sister too? Well, it's because the glitch doesn't just happen on an individual basis. It happens corporately as well, and it can be passed on. Abraham has passed on the glitch to his son, probably through genetics and also by his example, by how he models his life. And in the Ten Commandments, there's this one verse that used to puzzle me a lot. It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous, jealous, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Well, this verse was weird to me because why would God punish the children of rebellious parents? They don't deserve to be punished. But in Bible college, a professor helped me understand this passage in a different light. And I later read the same interpretation from Peter Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. 
The effects of us breaking God's commands are punishments in that they are naturally passed down onto our children, even though the children didn't start them or deserve them. Pastor Scazzaro writes, Family patterns from the past are played out in our present relationships without us necessarily being aware of it. Someone may look like an individual acting alone, but they are really players in a larger family system that that may go back, as the Bible says, three to four generations. The natural consequence of us regularly sinning is our kids will follow in the same pattern. We see this clearly in the book of Genesis with Abraham and his descendants. Abraham has a problem with lying. Isaac has a problem with lying. Jacob will have a problem with lying and so on and so on. Abraham also shows favoritism to one of his sons, Ishmael. Isaac shows favoritism to one of his sons, Esau. And Jacob shows favoritism to one of his sons, Joseph. The glitch in humanity gets passed down to our kids, unfortunately. If you were to go through your family tree and mark down regular issues among your family members, you would see a pattern. For me, I've done this in the past and I've noticed uh, a number of different patterns. One of them that stood out was a critical spirit. My grandparents, unfortunately, were critical people and they passed that on to my dad. And my dad passed it on to me and my siblings. And as hard as I'm trying not to, I think I'm passing it on to Lucy without me even thinking about it. We often hear people say things like, I'm not going to be like my dad or... I'm not going to turn out like my mom. But then, as they get older, it's almost inevitable. They do become like their dads or like their moms. They take on the same bad habits. They raise their kids with the same flaws. This all seems futile and nihilistic. can be a downer, especially when we read our passage today and see Abraham and Isaac repeating all the same mistakes But it doesn't end there. There is hope for us. There is good news. Exodus 20 does talk about the effects of sin working down through three to four generations of people. But it also says the effects of obedience, of following the law, has a positive effect on thousands of generations. Think about that. We can break the cycles and that break will have a greater impact than our generational sin will. But how do we do this? Well, we don't have a good example in our text today, so let's look elsewhere in the Bible. Let's look to Paul, for example. The way that he sees breaking the cycle is to follow Jesus. In Philippians, he talks about dying with Jesus so that Jesus can rise, uh, so Jesus can raise us up with him from the dead. Jesus, according to Paul, and what I believe and what we all believe, Jesus is the only one who can truly break these cycles and give us a new life. So we must lean into his power for our transformation. As I was saying in Philippians, Paul is talking about his goal to be like Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And then he writes this, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Even Paul, the super apostle, recognizes that he hasn't completely broken the cycle. 
He still makes the same mistakes, but he's not giving up. He's straining forward and his life demonstrates that real change is taking place in his heart and in his actions. Well, I want to leave you with a few practical tips and tricks that you can consider as you seek along with me to change the harmful habits in our lives. The first one is what Paul is talking about here. Look ahead. Where you look is where you'll go. I learned that in driving school many years ago. Like Paul, keep your eyes fixed on your goal and the vision that you have for your future. Jonathan has been talking a lot about this throughout the sermon series, and even last sermon was was titled, Look Ahead. And he knows what he's talking about. If we don't have a clear vision of where we're going, then we're not going to get anywhere. We're going to stay stuck in our rut. We're going to be aimless. We need to have a clear vision of where we're going to. Well, the second tip I have is, Look behind. (laughs) Now, this might seem like a contradiction. It might seem like I'm going against what Jonathan's been talking about. Absolutely not. But consider this. Didn't Lot's wife look behind and, and look what happened to her? Wasn't that Lot's problem as well? Looking at what he had left behind rather than looking forward to what could be? And even Paul in the passage that I just read said, Forget what is behind you. So why am I recommending that we look behind? Well, we need to look behind in order to let go and move on. George Santayana famously wrote, Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I didn't even realize my critical spirit was a problem until I looked back and saw the negative effect that it had on my dad. And then on me growing up under my dad. And now I see the effect that it has on others. We need to look behind us to understand why we keep repeating the same mistakes. And we need to do that so we can come up with strategies to avoid making those same mistakes again. This may be difficult for you if you've never done anything like this before. So I encourage you to do this with someone who has some experience. Maybe even go and see a counselor, someone who's professionally trained to work through issues like this. You might not know where to start or how to process what your family has done to you. So it's important that you have someone with you who knows what they're doing when you go through this. Well, the third tip that I have is try, try again. Remember, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I'm not saying that we should try the same things over and over again. I'm saying if the first thing that we tried isn't working, We've got to try something else and not give up. Keep going. It can be incredibly frustrating to try different methods to change and then see no success at all. But we can't give up. We mustn't give up. Forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead by trying something new that you've never tried before. The bad habits that we have in our lives were formed over a long period of time of making bad decisions And to break those habits, unfortunately, is going to take a long period of time making good decisions, small, insignificant decisions, but ones that push us in the right direction. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy, but it's so important and it's doable. So try, try again. Fourth, know that one size doesn't fit all. What works for someone else might not work for you at all. And that's okay. 
We're all different. We're all wired differently. We have, we all have to find our own way of doing things that work for us. Definitely try what has succeeded for other people. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't work for you, then take what you like and leave the rest. My friend recommended the book Getting Things Done to me to help me get things done. And certainly some of the ideas were helpful, but overall that that guy's system of doing things just was not working for me and I had to pass that book on to someone else and I managed to find another book that did give me some good tips that pushed me in a better direction. So don't get discouraged. Keep working at it until you find what works for you. And finally, most importantly, you are not alone. Don't try to change yourself on your own strength. You need others to support you. Get some trusted friends around you to help map out a strategy to reach your vision. Ask them to reward you when you've crossed milestones and to encourage you when you're struggling. And like I said earlier, seek out professional counseling or maybe find a support group of people who are going through similar situation as you. Another thing you can do is read other people's experiences, hear other people's stories, get some books that will give you some good practical advice. And these are some of the books that, that I'd recommend. You know uh, Soul Care already because Jonathan did a sermon series on it a year or so ago, and he even talked about this very topic in that sermon. Um, other books that have helped me are Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro and Switch by Dan and Chip Heath. But don't ever forget that God's desire and vision for you is health, wholeness, and shalom. And just like God's covenant with Abraham and Isaac, you are not alone in this. God was faithful to his promise to them, and he is faithful in his promise with you. Despite your mistakes and your repeated mistakes, you are still God's creation, and he is not finished working on you. I leave you with this verse from Philippians as encouragement and inspiration for the work ahead of you. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, it can be so incredibly frustrating and uh, just a downer to keep falling into the same rut and same pattern of life where we keep doing the same things over and over again that are not helpful, that are mistakes, that are hurting us and hurting other people. And it can be so hard when we can't stop doing those things, when we can't seem to find a way out. But Lord, we know that you are faithful to us. We know that you do have a way out for us. We know that Jesus wants to lead us from death to life. So I pray God for us today that you'd help identify what those areas in our lives are that we need to change. And help us, God, find a way out. Help us, God, to find the support we need from other people, from books, from counselors. And most importantly, from your Holy Spirit, God. Give us the strength and the power that we need to break those destructive cycles and move into a path forward to become more like you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, as we go from here, I want to leave you with a few reflections to consider before uh, we gather together on Sunday over Zoom. Uh, Take a look at these uh, reflections. Consider this question. What were the three R's in your family of origin? The three R's are rules, roles, and relationships. 
So just sit down and just think about this for a while. What were the rules that were reinforced? You know, those rules that maybe were unspoken in your family that you were, this is how you had to be, what you had to, how you had to act. What were the rules in your family about conflict? You know, what were the rules in your family about success? What success means, how to get success? What were the rules in your family about emotions? How do we express our emotions? What emotions can come out? There's other rules as well, rules around money, rules around other things, right? Consider what are the rules that you were reinforced as a kid? Uh, The third one, second one, roles. What were the roles that they asked you to play? You know, were you the problem child in your family? Were you considered the kid who got good grades? Or were you the victim in the family, the one who was always getting hurt and uh, um, to blame for everything? You know, what was the role that, that you were asked to play in your family? And third, the relationships that were modeled to you. Consider, how did your parents treat each other? Was there a lot of love and warmth and affection? Or was it cold and distant? Was there fighting? What about the relationships of how they treated you and your siblings? Um, you know, what, what were they like as parents to you? And, and how did they treat other people? How did you see your family treat people outside of your family? All these uh, modeling of relationships had an effect on you as a, as a person. So consider the three R's in your family of origin. And my next reflection to consider, what is God's vision for your future? What type of person is God molding you into? As I said before, Jonathan's been talking a lot about vision and where God is leading us. And so I want to push you even more with this. Consider it even more. Who is the person that God is calling you to be? For myself, as I was talking to you earlier about, you know, I've got this problem with critical spirit. I feel like God is calling me to be a person who's more encouraging, to be a person who is more open to other ideas, to to be a person who's more gracious to people when they make mistakes. And uh, these are all visions of who I see myself being in the future and who I'm striving to be. And so I want you to consider who is God calling you to be, where, where do you need to change and where are you headed towards? So those are my reflections for you for today. Uh, blessings on you as you work through these things and it's not easy and uh, blessings as you continue to work on this for the rest of your life but I look forward to seeing you on Sunday and chatting with you more then blessings